Good morning, Grace. Happy New Year. Come, Spirit, come. I need that. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. I know, Deuteronomy, right? 17, verses 14 through 20. Uh, I was asked to, to, to preach this kind of standalone sermon. We might call this uh, Take Up Your Sword Sunday. Um, thought about a, a passage that was in the Old Testament since uh, th- this uh, new reading program is gonna take us through the storyline books of the Old Testament. But also it, it kind of follows nicely from the series that we've uh, been, been preaching and listening to in the book of Genesis for the last two years. And I think it'll also anticipate in a, in a really neat way um, next week's reading service in the book of Philippians and that series, so I'm excited about that. And I think it's a good book, Um, it's a rich uh, passage for us as uh, we move into that that brief season of New Year's resolutions. Yeah. So let's read together Deuteronomy 17, uh, 14 through 20. This is Moses to the children of Israel before they entered the promised land. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose from one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Let's pray. Father, your word is great and full of truth, of wisdom, it reveals your heart, it reveals your character. And Father, it it can make us wise unto eternal life. I pray that this living and active word that is sharper than any two-edged sword would pierce our hearts this morning. Help us to see the things we need to see in it. Help us as we move into this new year, this next season. Lord, help us to renew our commitment to you, to your word, and your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. 
A lot of people talking about resolutions at the beginning of a new year. Um, something that I've noticed going on a lot at the, at the start of this particular new year is uh, new government. It's kind of a new kind of reshuffling of our elected officials and people have been sworn in. And uh, just about immediately, people are legislating. Okay, got to roll up their sleeves, get to work, um, and, and predictably so. And that's, that's what we elect them to do, after all. But I was having coffee with a friend this week, and uh, he had a, a great thought as we were talking about some of these things, and he says, wouldn't it be great if every elected official in the United States, before they took office, before they legislated anything, had to write a copy of the Constitution by hand and keep it with them and read from it every day. Okay. Yeah, that would be, that'd be a good idea. And it's kind of an old idea, isn't it? Well, we have here uh, a passage from the Old Testament. Um, I think, what does this have to do with us? We're not Israel. We're not, we're not in the Old Testament. None of, I'm not a king. None of you are kings as far as I know. What, what does this have for us? Well, I think it has a lot. And uh, I, I think as we, we start a new year, having come uh, out of preaching through the Old Testament and uh, offering, as, by way of suggestion, a reading plan uh, through the chronology of the Old Testament, uh, to again, think about God's word as a whole. And every word is good and true and profitable. Um, so this morning I just want to do two things. I want to first take us through this passage within the context of that Old Testament, okay? kind of pointing, looking backwards at where we've been in Genesis, but also then anticipating where uh, we're going to be in Exodus uh, and on and throughout the rest of Israel's history. So looking at it uh, through the Old Testament. Okay? And then second, I want to look at its significance for us in light of the New Testament the new covenant, and what this means for us as a church, how it can encourage us, how it can renew, help us renew our commitment to God's word. So first, the context in the Old Testament. Um, mainly, I'm gonna stay uh, in, in verses 18 through 20. I read the, the, the first verses there just to give it a little bit of context. Uh, Israel is, right now, uh, in limbo, they've been wandering around in the wilderness. Moses uh, has been leading them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, if, uh, at the end of Genesis, there uh, they go to Egypt for deliverance because of the famine. But they're there with the promise that one day they will return to the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's not going to be for another four hundred years. And so, for four hundred years, they were enslaved by the Egyptians. But God raised up Moses and he poured out his, his wrath on Egypt, sending 10 plagues, each one a blow against the gods of Egypt, proving that he alone was the one true God. And then he led them out with a mighty hand, crossing the Red Sea, parting it so that they could cross through on dry land, destroying Pharaoh and his army, providing manna and water in the wilderness to sustain them even while they grumbled and then he gives them their, his law. And so God is about to send them to the promised land and he is warning them. 
He is saying here, I brought you out of slavery. Don't go back. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't adopt the trappings of Egypt. Don't amass the wealth, the earthly power, the privilege of Egypt. After all I've done for you, do not return again to a life of slavery. And the way you stay out of slavery, paradoxically, is by submitting to my law. But even if you don't submit fully to my rule, and this passage tells us that God knows they're gonna screw up, Because he's already told them, hey, don't ask for a king. I'm your king. Oh, but you're gonna ask for a king. So when you ask for a king, I'm gonna allow it. But when you ask for a king, these are the the conditions. And the big one is, he's gotta be a man of the law. If you're gonna disobey me and ask for a king, at least have a king who submits to my word, to my law. He has to submit himself. This is the first time, I I think, in the Old Testament, in the entire Bible, where God is commissioning something like a personal Bible. Uh, In the opening uh, chapters of of Deuteronomy 5 and 6, uh, it does tell the the nation of Israel, look, you're to assemble, you're to listen to the words of the law, you're you're to take them in and and remember them and memorize them, commit them to your your memory and teach them to your children, write them on the doorpost. I think this is the first place we see God saying, yeah, you're gonna keep a copy of this. You're gonna keep it close. So let's look at all of these prescriptions then and why God commanded this in the context of Old Testament Israel and its, its implications. Number one, there's four things. Number one, he was to write a copy of the law. The king was to write for himself a copy of the law, handwritten. It's amazing, okay? Copy an entire, perhaps just the the book of Deuteronomy, but possibly even including the Levitical law, maybe the entire five books of Moses. Okay, but that's that's a lot. He had to make sure that it was approved by the Levitical priests. It says approved by the Levitical priests. It could also mean from before the Levitical priests. In other words, um, picture him sitting there in front of the priests writing, uh, them checking or making sure, yeah, yeah, you're, you're not missing anything, right? You're not adding, you're not, right? And he has to keep it with him, not just copy it. Okay, did that, now let's get to legislating. Let's get to ruling. No, keep it with him, why? So that he could read it all the days of his life, every day. What a great picture of humility. If you made me king, probably my first impulse would be to tell you something to do. or tell somebody something to do, right? But why did God command this? Well, he tells us. He tells us five things, five reasons why this was a good commandment for a far-off future. First, it says, to learn the fear of the Lord. This is gonna be a time 400 years later. Memory might grow dim, Do you remember what God did for your people Israel? Do you fear him? So first to learn fear of the Lord. Number two, by keeping and doing the words of the law. Notice the connection there, that fear of the Lord here is connected with obedience. It's not just a feeling. It's not mere abject terror before a holy God. 
but it's the willingness to do what that God commands in reverence and honor. Number three, it's to keep his heart from being lifted up above his brothers. Think back to those previous verses. Don't acquire horses. Don't acquire much gold. Don't take a lot of wives for yourself. Don't think you're better than others. There is a great temptation in positions of power to abuse it, to consider yourself above others, to lord it over. Number four, so that he would not turn aside from the commandment to the left or to the right. He is to do this so that he himself will not turn aside. And finally, number five, why? For blessing. So that he and his children would continue long in the kingdom in Israel. It echoes that first commandment that comes with promise. Remember, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may enjoy long life. Now, if you decide to go with with this reading plan or or maybe even another reading plan that takes you through the Old Testament, I want you to just footnote this this passage. Uh, Maybe write it in the the schedule. Just, just, Just put it somewhere visible because I want you to notice, we're gonna do a quick flyover then of the the Old Testament, little teasers here, how this passage anticipates for better and for worse everything that happens in Israel's history. And it doesn't even start with their first king who doesn't come for 400 years. It starts immediately following Joshua in the period of the judges, doesn't it? What's the recurring phrase throughout the book of Judges? And the people did what? It was right in their own eyes. In their own eyes. And for 400 years, they sin. God sends an enemy. They cry out to God. He raises up a judge, delivers them, and then it repeats over and over and over again until it just comes crashing down. The end of Judges is the most horrific, depressing scene, I think, in the entire Bible, and it's punctuated with, and Israel did not have a king. And of course, Israel took that to mean, well, we better get one, right? But I think the theological point from this is clear, it's because you didn't have God as your king. You did not honor the Lord. So they asked for a king, and God says, okay, you're gonna get a king. Here's Saul. He's really tall. (laughs) And almost immediately, Saul, in his presumption, adds to God's law. He swerves to the right, to the left, and God rejects him. But then we have David, don't we? We have that on on the positive side. We have David, who was a man after God's own heart been singing some of the psalms, writing all these psalms. He wrote a lot of those psalms, obviously out of his own experience as a shepherd and people always trying to kill him, but notice how many of the psalms are just suffused with the law. Just to tease it, look look at the reforms of David. Look at what David did near the end of his life, organizing the Levitical priesthood and setting up everything for worship in the right way as God had prescribed. Listen to what he says in Psalm 40. 
says, then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. David got it. That prescription for the kings to write out God's law, it wasn't just a perfunctory task. It wasn't a check the box, yep, done it. It was so that God's word would be inscribed on his heart and he understood that and it issued forth the most majestic of praise, praise that we still sing today. Isn't that amazing? And David passes this teaching. He tries to pass something of his own heart to his own son, Solomon. First Chronicles 22, 12 through 13, he says to Solomon, may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel, again, going back to the law of Moses. And for the most part, Solomon does this, but he screws up. And if you recall what we just read, that those opening verses, Solomon fails in every one of those things. He acquires horses, and guess where he gets them? Egypt. Horses and wives and gold. Horses, wives, and gold. And it says at the end of his life, his hundreds of foreign wives led him predictably astray into idolatry so that God then splits the kingdom under the foolish reign of his son, Rehoboam, who doesn't even, he doesn't even consult the old men who advised his father, the king. He goes with his buddies and asks, what should I do? And he lifts his head above his brothers and says, yeah, you know what? They wanted me to go easy on you. My little finger's bigger than my father's thigh. That's what, yeah, yeah, who's the man now? Whips, yeah, he beat you with whips. Scorpions, how do you like that? And Israel said, we're out of here. And they followed Jeroboam and the kingdom is split. And then the history of Israel just gets, just, it's up and down, right? Israel in the north, 19 kings, all of them rotten. Judah, southern kingdom, a little better, 20 kings. Eight were good. 40%, still an F. Okay. And 300 years from Rehoboam, we got this guy named Josiah, right? He becomes king at age eight. And at 18, he sends some guys on an errand. Hey, we, we need to refurbish the temple. Get all the money out and let's refurbish this temple. And say, hey, uh, we, found this, we found this law, <laughs> this book of the law. <laughs> Just imagine what... <laughs> And they read it. And it says, Josiah tears his robe. He listens to the whole thing and he tears his robe. I was considering bringing a shirt that I could just tear, just, just to get that visual. We don't do that. We don't, we should hand out rending robes, you know, in church. When was the, I was thinking about that. Like, when was the last time I physically ripped something because I was convicted by it in God's word, Right? But, he's, but he's, he's cut to the heart and he repents and he, and he says, this is, our fathers have gone astray. They've, they've, they've wandered from the commandments for hundreds of years. 
even the godly ones. And because of his contrition, God is merciful to him and stays his hand of judgment a little bit longer. But less than 50 years later, they go into exile to Babylon. But it's in that exile that we hear words of comfort, right? Because the Old Testament is a story that's about a person. And it's about God's work. God is the hero. And he's sending his promised seed, right? The promised king, the root of Jesse, the lion of Judah who will sit on David's throne, who was promised to King David, look, you're gonna have a king, your, your son will reign forever. His, of his kingdom, they will, will never end. And we hear words like those from the prophet Jeremiah in 31:33, talks about this new covenant that's coming. Because you keep breaking my laws, I'm gonna give you a better covenant. And here it is. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Not just the king's heart, but in everyone's heart. Zechariah, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, mighty and, no, humble, on a colt. Of course, that brings us to the New Testament, doesn't it? And it's clear who this fulfillment is, who this king is, that this passage before us just gives the faintest hint towards. He becomes more and more thrown into relief. I was talking with uh, one of our, our friends, uh, Jenny Earl, sitting over there. Uh, she she one uh, Christmas we were, we were sitting together and she was doing a reading program and she had remarked that you know, in her reading program she had, she had been in like the Kings or something like that, was that it? Right before Advent. It's kind of a weird, th- and, and she was just reporting on this, this is kind of weird, you know? And then, but, but said, wow, it was amazing. Look at this reading program. Look at, look, look, look at the reading, if you look at the reading calendar, look, look, look where it drops us off. Is it put her in mind of just the hunger and the thirst for righteousness that Israel had to have had for so many years, king after king, failing, 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 and then Christ comes. So obviously Christ is the one who fulfills this passage for us. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it down to the last jot and tittle. He's not gonna turn to the, to the right or to the left. John 5, 39, he tells the teachers of the law and the scribes, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus kept the whole law and not just that, Obviously, he knew the law. He was a rabbi. He, he, he had it memorized. No doubt he had written it. But he was the living law. He was the what? The word become flesh. He was the enfleshment of God's word. In the Old Testament, king and law, usually in opposition. In Christ, king and law, perfect 
perfectly and eternally united. And he did it in his humanity. He was one of us from among his brothers, appointed by the Father. He suffered all of our hardships and our temptations and yet submitted to the will of God his Father. He learned fear of the Lord as a man. He did not lift his head above his brothers. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. I want you to keep this passage in mind when we read Philippians 2 next week. When we read Philippians 2. So what are some of the principles that we can take from this passage? What are some of the the takeaways? I think the first one should be obvious, right? If the words of God in the book of Deuteronomy or or even the, the Mosaic Law as a whole, if that is good enough to govern the lives of kings, how much more can the whole counsel of God's word make us wise unto salvation, not just in this life, but in the life to come? The New Testament holds a high view of scripture as well, the study of scripture, and we need to be stirred up every now and again to be reminded of this, don't we? I know a lot of us can quote these verses, but they they bear repeating, because we are a forgetful people. As Eric reminded us last week, we are a forgetful people. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. It's the rightly handling the word of truth that characterizes the training of a godly approved servant of God. Later on in chapter three, 14 through 17, Paul instructs him, and as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings, that would have been the Old Testament. But the Old Testament could make him wise unto salvation. As Jesus' great post-resurrection sermon on, 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 on the road uh, with, with the two disciples Right, where he, he starts with Moses and goes through all the prophets and explains to them how it all points to him. In the verse many of us have memorized, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God, king, commoner, young, old, may be complete, equipped for every good work. We need to be people of the word. Number two, what we see in this passage is that the word of God is personal. I love that God wanted the king to have his own personal copy. But even though it was personal, notice that didn't mean that it was private. So second point is, takeaway here is, God's word is personal. It is for us, but it is not private. Because it wasn't just, he wasn't just on his own, like, oh, well, I can, I can kind of summarize it, right? 
The copy I keep, it has to be from before the Levites. It's gotta gotta stay faithful. Brothers and sisters, we have to be faithful to God's word in the plain, original intended sense that it was meant, and we cannot pick and choose based on what we would prefer. That's a hard one to swallow. There are many things in scripture that hit me hard and, and I don't like them. That says more about me than it does about scripture. God's word needs to inform us rather than the other way around. It's personal, but it is not private. It's also not private in the sense that this is why we gather together and hear it, right? It's not just you and your Bible, me and my Bible and my quiet time, just having time with the Lord. That's why we gather That's why we have public reading of scripture. Deuteronomy starts in chapter five and six talking about everybody assembled. Everybody was supposed to assemble. At the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, the entire nation of Israel, young and old, was to assemble every seven years and hear the entire law read end to end. So that's why we do reading services when we're about to preach a book of the Bible. And that's why I think we like to recommend if, if, if uh, God hasn't laid a, a different reading program on your heart to say, hey, what, let's try this one. We've been in the New Testament. Let's, let's go through the chronology of the Old Testament and let's do it together. I was just running with a, with a, with a friend yesterday morning and he said how neat it was. His wife had gotten together with uh, some, some friends to, to talk about, to read through, help each other stay accountable to the reading and discuss it and talk about it, Right? So it is personal, but it's not private. Number three, reading God's word is intended to make us humble. If you come away from reading and studying God's word and reading theology and all of that, if you come away arrogant and smug, you're doing it wrong. The king was commanded to read and copy, copy and read God's law. Why? So that he would remain humble, not so that he would be puffed up with the knowledge that he had, not so that he could lord it over. God's word should teach us humility. I need to be humble when I come to God's word. I need to be teachable. I need to remember that. When I look at this year's reading program and I go, oh, Genesis, again, for a couple months, again. I can be taught by that book. I was just thinking about this yesterday. If I were on a desert island, stranded on a desert island, and I could find one book, and I could choose, best novel I've ever written, book of Genesis. Slam dunk. Slam dunk, right? Got the gospel in there. (laughs) You've got the story of, of God's faithfulness, where I come from, all of it. It's all good, okay? We gotta remember that. Fourth, bigger picture here. Said this near the beginning. God's word frees us from slavery. It frees us from slavery and it keeps us out of slavery. How might we be enslaved. Well, 
I don't know if this is the meaning of the passage, it says, you know, t- turning neither to the right nor to the left, but scripture seems to be clear that there are two ways we can deviate. We can add to God's law and we can take away from it. We can fail to do it, but we can also add. John Piper identifies two ways that preachers and students of the Bible can distort the gospel and threaten salvation. And interestingly, both of these, I looked at these, they're both characterized in the New Testament with slavery language. One is adding to the law, and this is the slavery to the dead works of moralism. Moralism is, the, is, is one kind of slavery. What is moralism? Moralism comes to the text of scripture, maybe the Old Testament, sometimes even the New Testament, and says, well, says it, better do it right now, okay? Try harder, follow the rules, do your duty, just obey. Moralism teaches a fear of God that is reduced to mere terror but has no love. It does not sense the love of God and it does not feel or reciprocate any love for God. It's doing your duty for duty's sake. Moralism threatens the gospel because it either ignores Christ or it says that his atoning work on the cross was pretty good, but it wasn't enough. I need to add something extra for him to be super pleased with me. It sidelines the Holy Spirit. Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day were chastised for their moralism. The writer of Hebrews warns his fellow Jews, don't go back into Judaism and erase what Christ has done. Don't trample the blood of Christ. Paul wrote an entire book to the Galatians railing against the desire of Jewish Christians to force Gentile Christians into submitting to God's law from the Old Testament to becoming circumcised. He says this, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We aren't kings, but we are sons and daughters of the king. So let's not submit to the yoke of slavery anymore. If you're here with us, dear friend, thinking that you are okay with God because your good works outweigh your bad works, then I have bad news. You believe a false gospel. We at Grace want you to know the true gospel. We'll have people up here uh, praying. I would love to talk with you. Any, anybody here can, up, up here can tell you more about this gospel And I need to remember this too. I need to remember this as a father, as a teacher, because I can implicitly preach a false gospel to my children, can't I? By by being a moralistic parent, right? To communicate to them that, well, it's just about behavior rather than addressing their heart, right? Well, you're a good boy because you do good things, (laughs) right? I completely externalize goodness, 
and maybe they don't feel a need for Christ. But no, we must all come to God despairing of our ability to fulfill the righteousness that God requires and his law and instead turn to Christ whose total obedience to the law is credited to us through faith and whose death on the cross atones for all of our sins, past, present, and future. So then there's the second kind of slavery. So slavery to uh, moralism, second kind of slavery. This is the obvious one, slavery to sin. Slavery to sin, sin is slavery. John Piper again points out that that it's easy to react against moralism but then swing too hard the other way. We camp out on the doctrine of the finished work of Christ without allowing God's word to continue that work in our hearts so that faith will then express itself in obedience to Christ in the power of the Spirit. We have an aversion to obedience language, don't we? Try, try using the word obey in public or, or within a group of people. Obedience. We don't like it, right? And as Christians, we're under grace. We're not under the law. Yes. But as Piper points out, if all we do, and we can do this so easily, if all we do when we, say, read the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament, we feel like all we have to do is just, we'll connect it to Christ, and then we'll prop our feet up on, we'll just kind of recline on the, on the doctrine of imputed righteousness and justification and, and have done. He says, then we preach a false gospel on the other side, because we, we teach ourselves that true faith is not an alive faith. Faith is living, right? Christ's work on the cross not just saves us from the past, but, but it empowers us. And we obey not out of duty, not out of a, of, of, of a sense of having to, to earn our own way, but out of love and gratitude because we are his children. Let's remember Romans 6.6. 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He wants to set us free, not just from our past sin, but ongoing. 2 Peter 2.19-20 says, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. Let's pause just just for a moment as, as we think about this passage. Think about this past year, think about 2018. I love that Kenny asked this question, what, what feelings do you have kind of about this last year? I'm tired, weary, worn out. I'm gonna ask another question. In 2018, what enslaved you? What things enslaved you? Maybe it was moralism, which really at its root is pride, right? Want to be able to brag about our performance? Maybe it was slave to your own reputation. Maybe it was fear, anxiety, despair, hopelessness, unrighteous anger, 
bitterness, selfishness. Maybe he was holding a grudge, not being willing to forgive someone else. Maybe it was lust, sexual sin, substance abuse, greed, money, maybe just the accumulation of more stuff and more experiences, more fun, comfort, ease. Isn't it interesting how we can be enslaved by comfort and ease? Read a, I just reminded of an, of an article I read years ago. You know that in China, do you know how they've, do you know what they have started doing to political dissidents rather than throw them in prison? It's called vacationing. They send them on extended, all expense paid, cushy vacations. Why? So they'll be comfortable, so they won't complain. So they won't buck against the status quo, see no need for change. I see that in me. I see that in America, right? We get comfortable. I don't need to change anything. Whatever it is, write it down. If you have to cover it with your hand, that's fine. So the person next to you, the person next to you shouldn't be looking at yours, right? Look at your own, right? Log in your own eye, speck in your own eye, whatever it is. Because we have a culture around us that's, that's telling us all kinds of things, right? Culture is shouting at me. I, as it were, we live in Egypt, live in Babylon, right? The world's telling me authority is bad. Don't submit to anything. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You don't know anybody anything. Trust in your own feelings. Trust your own merits, your own competencies, your own skill set. Go with your gut. There's an app for that, or a special diet, or an exercise program, or an essential oil. <laughs> Sorry, sacred cows. <laughs> or some other contrivance of science. All right, someday science. Someday science saves. Something, or there's one weird trick, right? And it's all thrown at us to promise relief, results, comfort, gratification now. Contrast that with a picture of a, of a person who you would think is high and mighty, bent over God's word day in, day out, slowly, painstakingly, copying it out, studying it, meditating on it, learning the fear of the Lord, obeying. It's not glamorous. It's not instantaneous. It's a slow road of faithfulness, but it's what we're called to. We have a book that is fit for kings. And we read a book that proclaims the glory and the saving power of the king of kings. And when we accept his free offer of salvation, he empowers us to do his will if we will listen. 
and if we will submit to his Holy Spirit. Last week, Eric, it's good to have you back. <laughs> I would just say that, I haven't kind of talked to you yet. He said, he said a couple of things that I, that I wrote down and tried, tried to get. He said, we are too wrapped up in our cultural identities and we need to live in light of our royal identity. Let's start living our royal identity by committing ourselves once again this year to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we need your mercy. We praise you that it's new every morning, that we don't have to wait till the new year to get back on the wagon. I pray that you would touch every heart this morning, that you would rekindle in us a desire, a hunger and a thirst for your word, for your righteousness. Give us the power to do this in your spirit so that we might not boast in our own strength, but fully lean on Christ. In his name we pray these things, amen.